Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, June 26th. And this is the weekly market update. As always, the, uh, this is not to be taken as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence. Anything you hear on this podcast or see on this video is not financial advice. So before I get going, I want to talk about some housekeeping issues. Um, I'm getting more and more inquiries or concerns about some of the subjects I'm talking about that's maybe going to eventually get me thrown off of YouTube or videos banned. What I've decided to do is uh, I have now begun uploading, or going forward at least, I will begin uploading all of my videos to BitChute that will just basically mirror the videos that I'm putting on YouTube. So if you're inclined to use BitChute, if I disappear um, off of YouTube or I'm banned or whatever happens, I don't anticipate that, but you never know. Um, I will have a mirror site, a mirror uh, account at BitChute, and I'll put a link to the channel so that you can uh, follow me there if that's your what you'd like to do. Uh, regardless, if anything does happen, I will be able to communicate via my Twitter and my website, actionableintelligencealert.com. So just thought I'd do that. You never know. Things are going to get more radical, probably. Um, some of the subject matter I'm talking about is not what people want to talk about, want people talking about. So I thought it was prudent to at least put a mirror site up. Okay. This week's reality check, you know, we've been talking a lot about lying and the government. And one of the things people have this perception, I think a lot of people have this view, they, I don't know if they're taught this or they just believe it, but they think these various government agencies like the FDA and the SEC, that they're just like staffed, like I've said before, staffed with these angels that are there to protect them and that they're not motivated by any self-interest. They're just altruistic beings that are, you know, looking out for us. And if any mistakes are made, well, it's just, you know, people make mistakes. And I don't subscribe to that view. Uh, these, these people, like I said, I showed the other day, the lobbying, uh, the rotating door between industry and the regulators, the regulatory capture that goes on uh, by various companies <clears throat> and industries where they basically in many cases, write the legislation for uh, regulations that are coming up. They're involved in that. And we can, I can come up with example after example. Uh, this reminded, I was reminded this week when I was reading another article about the FDA and the big boner they had uh, with Vioxx, which was a Merck drug. And I wanted to point this out because there's an, uh, a link to an article that catalogs a lot of the information, but this is an example of something that was an approved drug um, and it ended up killing a lot of people, tens of thousands of people. It was taken off the market voluntarily. There was a bunch of litigation back and forth and ended up really nothing really happened. Uh, nobody was really put in prison. I don't really know if there was a lot of lawsuits. It kind of just fades to memory, right? History just fades. People, 
the news cycle changes, you move on to the next thing. But I thought this was interesting. And you might may want to read the article, you may want to do some of your own research, because, you know, tens of thousands of people were affected by this. So, you know, Vioxx was a prescription medication used to relieve signs and symptoms of arthritis, short-term pain in adults, and painful menstrual cycles. This was an FDA-approved drug. The FDA asserted that Vioxx received a six-month priority review. It got a priority review due to the drug's potential for a significant therapeutic advantage over existing drug alternatives, specifically fewer gastrointestinal side effects such as bleeding. So a lot of people have been taking ibuprofen, aspirin, things like that to alleviate their joint pain. This drug came along and one of the benefits was that would alleviate the joint pain, but you wouldn't have gastrointestinal bleeding. So studies showed that patients taking Vioxx were at greater risk of heart attack and stroke than those taking older pain reliever alternatives such as ibuprofen or naproxen or those not taking any painkillers. At the time of its recall, Vioxx had been taken by some 4 million Americans. Out of those patients who took Vioxx, the arthritis drug may have caused approximately 140,000 heart attacks, resulting in an estimated 60,000 deaths, FDA investigator Graham. Uh, this was challenged by other people in the FDA that this was, that the gathering of the information was not, of these deaths was not scientific enough. That was more of a spreadsheet exercise. But the fact remains, you know, that when this happened, everybody goes into CYA mode. The agency goes into CYA mode, the drug company, um, the lawyers come out, the word parsing starts happening. It, it's not, it's, it is acknowledged that a, 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 quite a few people were harmed by this. This is what I want to point out. This is why I think a lot of times you don't get a lot of scrutiny around these things because there's money involved. In the first four months of 2000, Merck spent $67 million on advertising for Vioxx, which was more than any company had ever spent to advertise any other drug at that time. So as you well know, if you watch TV, I don't, but I remember, uh, there's a tremendous amount of drug advertising that goes on. These people, these drug companies spend tens of millions of dollars advertising these drugs. And it's a major component of, you know, that's the business of television, right? To produce programming and whether it's news or shows or whatever, and to attract advertising. And so, um, I asked the question, if a large, I don't know the total amount of drug, drug company advertising as a percentage of advertising for these companies, but are you more prone to investigate uh, these companies if they are spending this kind of money on advertising? Or are you saying, well, you know, do you hide behind your lawyers and say, well, this was an FDA approved drug? You know, who are we? This is the problem that happens a lot, right? So you put your faith in these angels at these, at these agencies. And then when it goes off the rails, everybody has plausible deniability. Well, the agency approved it. The SEC knew about Madoff, but didn't do anything. It's not, you know, you can go, you can go down the list. You know, the agency should have known the agency approved. So you have these bureaucrats there, uh, that may be or may not be, you know, doing the best job, may or may not be influenced by the potential job they're going to get in the private sector, may or may not be influenced by the regulatory capture that goes on, the lobbying that goes on. 
And then, you know, you have something like this happen and then everybody goes into, you know, circles the wagons and goes into CYA mode. In the meantime, tens of thousands of people are dead. Did anybody from Merck go to jail? I mean, I didn't have time to research what the lawsuits are. I'll probably take a look at that later on, but, you know, I'm sure there were lawsuits. You know, really, you know, how was Mark harmed? How did, who paid? Who was held accountable? Who's responsible? The FDA was also under criticism for what some described as its seemingly cozy relationship with Merck. At a Senate Finance Committee hearing, witnesses described how danger signals of Vioxx went ignored. So, like I said, I didn't have time to delve into all the little uh, intricacies, but this is just another example. And there are many examples like this. Like I said, I could just go week to week just talking about this stuff. And what I'm trying to tell you is, is if you place all, you know, we had a similar situation this week. Um, we've had anecdotal, now we've had several news reports of younger people having these heart problems uh, that are pretty serious heart problems based on the taking of the disease that can't be mentioned, uh, mRNA serums. And originally, the World Health Organization came out and said that you should not be giving these things to 18-year-old people and under. That's a fact. They said that. Now, you will not find that on the internet now because it's been scrubbed. Why? The WHO is funded primarily, number one, by the United States government, and secondly, by guess who? The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And so they rescinded that, they scrubbed it, but you can go to the Wayback Machine, which catalogs the internet, and you can still find that. So we have, this just, this just continues, you know? And so we're being, you know, why, why would they say, don't, um, don't give this to people? They had an emergency, the FDA had an emergency uh, the CDC had an emergency conference to, to talk about this exact issue, which I still don't, I didn't try to look the results up, but everything just continues. Right. And, you know, now we, we, if we look at some of the facts of some independent journalists have said that more people under the age of 18 have been harmed by this serum than have been harmed by the disease that can't be mentioned. Cause we know that most younger people are not really affected by this but they can be affected by this series. I mean, the one guy, there was an article in the newspaper, the guy, the, the father of the, the son was, is hospitalized with this serious heart condition now that's probably going to affect him the rest of his life and possibly shorten his life. And the father's distraught because he's, you know, he kind of forced the kid to get it. The kid didn't want to get it. He didn't really need to get it. And he got it anyways. And, you know, so people would say to me, you know, I kind of mentioned this and people say, well, you know, you, I've seen other people mention this on Twitter also, and the retort is, well, you know, um, a certain amount of people are going to be harmed, but it's for the greater good. I, I don't buy that. I don't buy that the greater good's being served by a serum that's not approved by the FDA. They won't even approve it. It's an experimental use authorization, and none of these drug companies have any liability. That's crazy. That's crazy that anybody would take this. I just don't understand it. You are the experiment. You are the trial. Now, I guess I hope that it goes well for everyone. I really do. But we have example after example, like I just pointed out here, that when it goes off the rails, they're all going to run away, lawyer up, and you're going to be on your own. That's it.
All right, so natural gas prices rallying globally. Matter of fact, they are making like decade and 13 year highs. Natural gas markets around the globe are rallying as the world's importers have come to a stark realization. There isn't enough supply to go around. A long frigid winter drained gas stockpiles from Louisiana to Germany and utilities are struggling to build them back up. But unforeseen supply disruptions and a rebounding global economy are making it impossible to keep up. That's setting up a desperate scenario as hot summer temperatures approach, and it's bound to get even worse when demand peaks this winter. If a gas deficit does develop during the winter months, it could spur European utilities to burn more coal. Well, that's already happening, which has already, well, it's like they said, which has already started happening and caused China's power producers to curtail supplies to industries and cause blackouts like it did last winter. You know, we talked about this. Um, the, the, we've had these overabundance of, of supply of natural gas and oil because of the fracking revolution and the, and the drill baby drill at all costs. And that's all changing now. Okay. Not to mention the fact that we are starting to have colder weather. People are, are ignoring the fact, uh, you know, I don't have conclusive proof yet, but I still believe that, you know, the grand solar minimum, we are in a grand solar minimum entering it. We are going to see cooler temperatures over time. We're going to have winters that are more severe. They're going to be longer. And uh, this is going to affect several things. Energy is one of them. Now, I believe if prices get high enough, they'll turn, you know, they'll go back to drilling again. But I found an interesting statistic this week. You know, even with oil above $70 a barrel, actually the amount of drilling rigs being employed declined this week in the United States. And I found that interesting because if you would have saw the kind of oil price increase we've seen, which has almost been 100% almost in the last year or so, increase in oil prices, you would have seen all kinds of drilling going nuts everywhere. But you're not seeing that. You're seeing that capital discipline that we talked about. That's these companies are not just going to drill for the sake of drilling anymore. The incentives have been realigned and there's no appetite for just going out and there's no capital because now you add on the ESG situation and people that have capital are less hesitant to give capital or invest capital in hydrocarbons. And so I'm not forecasting it, but right now, but there's a good potential. There's a good, you know, the bet is getting more and more, um, lucrative or, or, or potential for a lucrative bet that we could have, you know, high, very high energy prices this winter if the winter comes in uh, a lot colder than expected. Now, you know, low prices will cure low prices, high prices will cure high prices. You know, eventually if the price gets high enough, people will go out and start drilling again, but there's a lag time, right? And so there's a possibility of, you know, making excess profits. I mean, look at our situation with like Antero Resources. The thing just keeps going up. You know, the natural gas liquids prices are still very high, which is a big portion of their production. Um, now with gas prices going up, uh, you know, well, well into like the mid threes. And, you know, what if you get back to what we saw in the past where you're up at seven, eight or $11 a thousand cubic feet? I mean, you could have a tremendous run in some of these companies. I believe prices that high would get to drilling to spur drilling. But look at the other thing that they're talking about. The lack of natural gas or the cost of high cost of natural gas is doing what? It's, it's, it's creating a situation with utilities where they can are shifting back to coal burning. 
And here we go again. There's, there's a, not enough coal either because no, all the coal mines shut down. Well, not all of them, but a, good, a lot of coal mines shut down and no one's going to invest in any new ones. So if you are sitting on thermal coal supplies and you have the ability to mine it, you are conceivably in the cuckoo bird seat. And we've seen, you know, re record near-term highs for coal prices or, or coal prices we haven't seen in more than a decade. So this is all lining up. The energy complex is just looking outstanding for us right now. And uh, that's, where we're, that's where we're benefiting. And I think it gets better. And like I said, if we have a cold winter, I mean, who knows where this can go. Here we go. Coal prices hit decade high. And I'll have links to all these articles in the show notes uh, where I get this information. You know, a lot of times, you know, people, I've been accused before people just say, well, you're just, you know, whatever's hot is what you're on. I mean, that's what this is. This is weekly market updates, what's going on in the markets. You know, we're invested in these things for months already and sometimes years. And now we're starting to see the fruition of the, of the thesis. And so, yes, I'm reporting on the news. This is most current news of what's going on in real time. Coal prices have climbed to their highest level in a decade, making the fuel a hot commodity in a year when governments are pledging reductions in carbon emissions. All right, good luck with that. A shortfall of natural gas, rebounding electricity usage, and scanty rainfall in China have lifted demand for thermocoal. I guess the scanty rainfall in China would be uh, lack of, you know, dam-produced electricity. Coal delivered in Northwest Europe earlier this month hit its highest price since November 2011, having climbed 64% in 2021. Prices for coal exported from Newcastle in Australia, most of which heads to Asia, have risen 56%. And we've seen that. We've been reporting on it. And so over the next couple quarters, we should see some outstanding results for, from the coal producers. And uh, like I said, you know, I talked about one of the, and that's the, you know, these high prices, super high prices that you haven't seen in a decade, they can fix balance sheets real quick. I talked about the copper producer that I have in the portfolio uh, last year, like a, maybe I think it was the second quarter of last year, maybe the first quarter, basically when copper plunged to like a dollar fifty or a dollar seventy five, um, this particular company was issuing uh, going concern uh, warnings, and that meant that basically they were, you know, they didn't know if they were going to be able to con continue as a company because they had insufficient cash because the price of their primary product was so low. It was basically well below, the price they were getting for the product was well below their production costs and they were hemorrhaging cash and they had debt. Now, fast forward a year later, year and a half, well, over a year later, and with copper at, you know, over $4 a pound, now they have record cash flows and everything's all, all good again. So that's how fast these commodity producers can fix their balance sheets. We've seen the same thing in a lot of the, um, oil producers in Canada that are in a portfolio. You know, one of the things they've said is they're not really investing in new production per se. They're just reaping the benefits of these uh, prices that have rebounded. And they're all saying the same thing, you know, paying down debt, which is accretive to equity holders like ourselves. And then, you know, as they pay down debt, returning cash to shareholders via bu um, buybacks and dividends. So, you know, if these prices hold here, if they stay up here or go higher for some period of time, 
uh, the cash flows that will be generated by these businesses will be tremendous. And I suspect that uh, they will be manifested in higher share prices. Uh, that's what I would assume at least. So it's very interesting. Um, it's a really great opportunity. You know, a lot of these things have moved already. And in, in that's the thing that people need to be to think about. You know, we, we kind of suspected this was these things were going to happen. We bought in. We always get in early, right? Because we're thinking ahead. And then the idea is, you know, not popular. And people are like, why are you doing that? But you're buying it at cheap prices. I mean, you're buying things, you know. And then when these things move, people come into the market and the things already moved five times, you know, you're up five X already. And then people ask me, well, is it still a good bet? Well, it's probably, you know, it's not the same lucrative investment opportunity or speculation. It was, you know, six months or a year ago, but there's still upside, but there's not 10 times upside anymore. And so that's why it's imperative to get on these trends early and it doesn't feel good. I mean, that's the hard part, right? That's why people are not successful because it's like, you want me to invest, you know, six months ago or a year ago, you want me to invest in coal companies? Are you nuts? I'm not doing that. You want me to invest in oil? Oil's going away. Are you nuts? Well, you see what happens. Um, we determined that the premise was wrong. Hydrocarbons are not going anywhere for decades. And no matter what the governments in the West say, they can continue to say whatever they want in the United States and in Europe. The rest of the world is the majority of the population and they continue to develop. As a matter of fact, a lot of these countries are in their middle of their uh, S curves in their commodity demand. And this is where the most demand increases come from. So, you know, we've already talked about it in the past, like the minister of energy in India saying that, you know, we have the right to develop just like everybody else. And in order to do that, we're going to use fossil fuels. So um, the artificial cutback in supply caused by, you know, ESG movements isn't going to affect the, the demand in these other places where the majority of the people in the world live and where they're trying to get out of poverty, where they're trying to achieve uh, higher living standards. Expect this trend in energy to continue. So this is a Morningstar article. Like I said, I have a link um, in the show notes. There's nothing really new in uranium. I don't talk about it anymore. What's there to talk about? You just sit and wait now. Uh, hopefully you've got your positions. Uh, we had this situation the other day where or maybe a couple of weeks ago where they thought there might be a, a nuclear incident in China, I believe it was, I believe that's where it was. It ended up being a big nothing burger and, you know, prices went down. I mean, that's your opportunity to buy more, take another bite at the apple. Like I said, this is another example though, of not, you know, you have to get in a, a lot earlier. There's already been a tremendous move in a lot of these stocks. It's not to say there won't be more of a move, but you know, the spot price is just, you know, the price of uranium is only up, you know, a little bit over $30 a pound. So there's a lot of anticipatory um, built in uh, price movement of the price of uranium into the stocks already. And so, you know, we've got some stocks that are up three, four, 500%, something like that in the portfolio. Uh, are they buys now? I don't know. They're not as lucrative as they were, you know, a year and a half, two years ago when you, you know, but I still think that uh, the uranium is going to make a new all-time high eventually. I don't know the time period. And so there's really not much to do if you've already bought these, you know, just talking about things over and over the same things. It's just a matter now to let the supply demand dynamics uh, come into play. So this is what Morningstar said. Uranium offers a rare growth opportunity in metals and mining. 
says Morningstar Equity Report, says a Morningstar Equity Report, noting that while China's structural slowdown could put an end to a decade-long boom for most commodities, it won't impact uranium. That's not necessarily true either uh, about China. And then you still have to talk about India and everything else, but regardless. Quote, we expect global uranium demand to rise about roughly 40% by 2025. That's crazy if that's true. A staggering amount for a commodity that saw next to zero demand growth in the last 10 years, says Morningstar Sector Director Christopher Inton, who forecasts new reactor capacity to drive the strongest uranium demand growth in decades. Yeah, that's what we've said. His growth projections are based on a quadrupling of China's reactor fleet and new reactors in India, South Korea, and Russia. I got news for everybody. Nuclear is the future on this planet for electricity production, uh, regardless if you want to care about CO2 or not. This, uh, you know, I'm going to have another uh, slide here in a minute by Michael Schellenberger talking about solar and solar waste, and nobody's talking about that, and wind, wind blade waste. I mean, you're, you're going to see a, I believe, a growing reluctance to continue moving forward with uh, so-called renewable energy as time goes on, as they prove, as the intermittency and cost and unreliability asserts itself. And uh, I think it will continue in the West. They'll continue down this road, uh, but eventually blackouts, the high prices, things like that will eventually sour people on this. And I think uh, more and more people are going to gravitate to nuclear. We even saw it this week, even in uh, Congress, they've brought forth more legislation to give subsidies to the nuclear industry uh, to keep it going because I think these people actually do understand or beginning to understand that you're not going to lower CO2 emissions by building more solar plants and more um, uh, wind farms. It's just not how it works. And that's shown from ener the energy transition, so-called energy transition in Germany. They just did not achieve their goals after spending, you know, $600 billion. So I think that the realization is going to set in that nuclear power is actually not as the demon that it is. And that I think that's, you know, we're going to probably be the last ones to, you know, figure this out. But eventually, I think we will. And, you know, you see what's happening with the Chinese and these other places, India, th these other developing countries, they're not standing by. Yes, they have a complete energy mix uh, because that's what they need to supply electricity to their population. But I think over time, nuclear makes more and more sense. And, as you know, it's just, I think that's where we end up. And so I think uh, because of the lack of investment we've had, we're going to have a cycle that's going to exceed the previous cycle. Now, we are looking forward to the Sprott uh, Trust that's coming out, Uranium Trust. That should be happening in the next couple months. I don't know if it seemed like there was a lot of emphasis put on that by a lot of folks in the Twitterverse, in the Uranium Twitterverse, and in a lot of videos that I watch. But um, we'll, have, we'll have to see what really happens. I mean, if it's going to end up being uh, the catalyst for higher prices to tip this thing into to really kick off the bull market in uh, uranium to really get things moving. We'll see how much that that uh, is able to absorb. So it'll be interesting. So this is the uh, article. I'll, it's a long article. It's uh, I really like 
reading Michael Schellenberger. Reason I like him is because he is an environmentalist, and originally he was very positive towards green energy, renewable energy. And as he did the research, which most people don't do, he realized a lot of things that were put out by the industry, a lot of things that were put out by advocates weren't true. And uh, he still had the view that, you know, we need to lower CO2 emissions. So he looked around and said, you know, we're not going to go back to caveman living. So nuclear power is actually pretty viable. And it's, you know, once you do the research into these things and the math, you start figuring these things out. And that's what most people don't do. They, they just don't have the time or the inclination to learn these things. And so the media has a view. It's, you know, psychophant, psychophant uh, to the industry and to government. And this is what the government wants. So it's got to be great and blah, blah, blah. And everybody buys into it. And, you know, there's a certain, there's a lot of money involved. There's hundreds, you know, green energy is going to be really hard to, or renewable energy is going to put up a really stiff fight because there's hundreds of billions of dollars worldwide that are um, being spent every year. And it's not just going to go away. Okay, right. Well, it doesn't really uh, live up to its projections. So we're going to, you know, turn this all off and admit we made a mistake. That's not how things work. Uh, I do think though, like I said, you know, if you have another situation here in Texas where you had those kind of blackouts or things don't work, I mean, the blame is going to get placed. And you've seen in California now, you know, I mean, I don't know. A lot of these states are not, if they continue down this path, they're just not going to have enough generation. You're also seeing legislation starting to come forward now. I think it's here in Texas, where if you have a renewable plant that you have to, um, you have to account like you have to bid for the next 24 hours. And that's very hard for a renewable plant to do it, like a solar plant. They can't bid into the market uh, power because they can't produce power at night. So in order to bid into the market for the next 24 hours, they would have to go out and contract with a natural gas facility, power plant, or some other power plant that's fossil fuel that's running. And then that will definitely raise the cost. And so what they're trying to do is say, okay, that's fine that you have this renewable plant, but you can't just force this into the market and then push these other fossil units offline. And then when you this, a cloud comes over, they're supposed to ramp back up. No, if you want to bid into the market, it has to be for a time period. And if you can't meet your requirement because you're offline because of the sun or because of night, then you have to buy the power from somewhere else and market it that way. So I think you'll see more of that, especially if we have more of these blackouts and things. We'll see if this legislation gets footing, but uh, that would be uh, that would definitely put the real cost. Now, the green advocates will say, well, what about the external costs of all the pollution, blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, that's what they're proposing carbon taxes for. So um, we'll see how this all shakes out. But uh, I think one thing to note is energy prices are going higher. So anyways, to get to... Uh, this article, which is very long, and I'll put a link to it. It's pretty good. Solar panels, everything they said about solar was wrong. That's the uh, basically the tenet of the article. Solar panels will create 50 times more waste and cost four times more than predicted. New Harvard Business Review study finds. That's from Harvard Business. These are business professors that did this review. But the volume of solar panel waste will destroy the economics of solar, even with the subsidies, they say. By 2035, write the three economists, Discarded panels would outweigh new units sold by 2.56 times. 
In turn, this would catapult the levelized cost of energy, a measure of the overall cost of an energy producing asset over its lifetime to four times the current projection. The solar industry and even supposedly neutral energy agencies grossly underestimated how much waste solar panels would produce. So it's a long article, I suggest you read it. He also talks about you know, the blades from turbines over the next 20 years. We're going to have to find landfill space for um, 720,000 tons of discarded blades. Now, the, 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 the retort is, or somebody out there, when I say this, is already saying, well, wait a minute, we can recycle these. We can force them to recycle it. What you need to understand is they already do recycling. And in some cases in Europe, they force the companies to account for this in their costs. And the problem is, is it costs a lot more money to recycle a panel than the recoverable elements that you get from the panel because panels are mostly glass and the small amounts of metal in each panel it's not worth that's why they haven't been been recycled to this point because it's not worth it. it's easier just to throw it away and get another one the other thing they're beginning to find is that the panels don't last as long they degrade much faster than people thought what's the other knock well we talked about it last week or the week before you know what's the net benefit economically to the united states we don't manufacture these things here the a lot of the elements that we need to make these are mined and processed in china china controls 70 to 97 percent based on what material you're talking about of the supply chain for these panels and they're manufactured in china so they're getting the net benefit so then you ship them over here and then you have low skilled or semi-skilled labor for a period of you know six months to a year putting the plant together so you have some jobs there, three or 400 jobs for six months to a year building the plant. And then you have, you know, an ongoing, you know, uh, an ongoing six or 10 guys or whatever, a couple few guys that operate the plant. So what's the really the, what's the big net economic benefit for all this? Now, if you build a nuclear power plant uh, on a small, you know, couple hundred acres, You've got hundreds of people working there. They're highly skilled. They're highly paid. The infrastructure, the support that you need in industry to support that is all high tech, uh, you know, and heavy manufacturing that has good wages. So there's all this benefit to, in my view, moving towards nuclear. And I think that's what we will. But I'll put a link to this article, and uh, it's uh, very thought-provoking. Okay, grain analyst goes missing as China hides failed crop news. I mean, this is almost like a James Bond movie, right? I mean, so China's decisions around its agricultural policy are becoming increasingly murky with news of arrests, secrecy, and claims of cover-ups. Independent analysts who report on China's grain industry have reportedly been arrested and their online businesses shut down to stop them from telling the truth about the country's below average crop. Quote, they don't want the whole world to know that they need grain and they are in a bit of strife so that so they are closely very closely regulate the information that is released well that's what uh you know a communist type government would do and we do know that they had crop failures we do know that uh the crop failures continue we see the amount of grain that they're importing it's i've reported on this before and so you don't want information getting out about the true cost because that could fo force prices higher right i mean if everybody knew the true extent and it's as bad as some people are saying, then grain prices would react uh, immediately so uh, and go higher. 
So, and they don't want the population there knowing either, because the thing you need to understand about China is they've had many famines throughout their history, and they are very, very uh, conscious of this, and they are very, very, it's kind of in their cultural uh, history, if you will. And uh, so I can see why they would try to hide this stuff. In the end, the truth outs, right? Because, uh, and then, you know, what we're seeing is grain prices are, they're down recently. Uh, but, you know, we're seeing reports out of Brazil that rainfall has not been sufficient for the corn crop. Uh, you know, so we'll see what happens. But I, I'm a long-term bull, a longer-term bull on agriculture. And I think it's going to be part of this uh, decade. This is going to cause a lot of problems, the price of food uh, going forward for a lot of people around the world. Okay, I wanted to talk about this. Um, I like talking about these people always asking me, what else am I doing around the world? Why am I doing it? Where are the opportunities? You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of what's going on in Uzbekistan. I have large holding there, uh, I believe, uh, in what's going on there. It's, so far, it's working out very well. And this is just one reason, right? Uzbekistan is the number eight gold producer in the world. Uh, they cracked 100 tons of gold this year. Uh, it was up from about 96 tons last year. And uh, they're not just a gold producer, they are, you know, they produce a lot of other minerals and agricultural products and cotton and all kinds of things. Uh, one of the things, you know, here's Uzbekistan on the map right here, in case you didn't know. But one thing that is also going to benefit from is the new Silk Road as, you know, from China through here into Europe. Um, that's going to be a major transportation hub it's developing as. So has a lot of good things going for it. This is just something I, I thought I'd throw up. It's a pretty good um, a graphic. And, uh, you know, they haven't really scraped because of the underdevelopment or the lockdown of the country since the collapse of the Soviet Union, there hasn't been a lot of investment, exploration, all these things, right? So they have these huge mining companies there in Uzbekistan, which I'm hopeful that they will privatize over time. But the level of investment exploration has not been up to world standards. And I suspect that will change over time, uh, as indicated by the next slide. So Uzbekistan significantly increased its output last year from 94 tons to 101 tons. The first time it succeeded 100 tons in one year. The Central Asian country is home to, I can't pronounce the name of this mine, the world's largest open pit gold mine by area. The project, which also contains huge deposits of turquoise and arsenic, sits atop what many geologists believe could be the biggest gold reserve in the world. Well, that would be just terrific. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is a country that has a young population, like I said before, low debt. It has a manufacturing base. The Soviets spent a lot of money uh, there. Population's educated. It's young. And uh, it sits right in the middle of the um, New Silk Road. And it has a, it's endowed with a lot of natural resources and they're privatizing, they're deregulating, they're doing all the things they need to do to unleash uh, positive economic forces. And uh, I think this will continue. And I think it's a good, uh, uh, a good place to invest. It's not, like I said, it was better a place to go a year ago or two years ago, but uh, I still think it has long-term upside. This is something that you do for the next 20, 10 or 20 years. So what am I showing this chart for? This is the number of people living on $10 a day, which is considered kind of uh, not middle class, but, you know, above just poverty. And so you have like in, in, in China, 592 million people. 
you have in Brazil 125 million people, and this goes down the list, right? Vietnam, 58 million. And you see all these, a lot of these African countries down here where, you know, in South Africa, you only have 15.9. I mean, you have a very small population of people that are wealthy, a lot of people poor, but this is like people that at least have $10 a day that they're living on, uh, which is not considered middle class, but, uh, you know, above, you know, uh, above subsistence, kind of moving into the middle class. And so what you have is potentially this huge population this is what I'm counting on over the next 20 or 30 years. That's why I'm bullish on Africa. Uh, not all the countries are the same. Uh, some countries are liberalizing their economies. Some countries have a lot of corruption. And so there's almost like 50 countries there. Not everyone's the same. Uh, but I think that uh, there's a lot of potential there because of the demographics, because of the low base that's starting from. And uh, so hopefully this will manifest itself as a uh, a source of long-term growth, kind of like where you were in Asia in the 70s and 80s where nothing was really going on. You know, if you look at pictures of Singapore or Hong Kong or these places back in the day, uh, Macau, they were just like nothing. And then the transformation, I'm not suggesting the same thing will happen in Africa, but the inertia is there, the capital will flow there. And as these countries, there are success stories all over the, the continent where countries are liberalizing and they are, um, adopting uh, policies that will result in uh, economic growth. So uh, I thought this was a pretty good idea. I mean, people ask me what, what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. I mean, I have these short-term speculations I do, but I have these long-term themes that I put money into and they're like the coffee can portfolio, right? You just tuck it away and this thing just develops over 10 or 20, 30 years. And then you you know open it back up and it's you know worth a ton of money. Uh, so that's what I suspect will happen. That's what I'm uh, hoping will happen. Uh, that's my view. So uh, there's a lot of opportunity around the world. The problem with a lot of people is they have home country bias and they don't look beyond their own borders. And that is uh, not the best way to look at things, especially in this day and age where the ability to invest and interact with people over the world is easier and easier. So uh, that's what I encourage people to do. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you next week.